0: The Late Lunch with Blackstone Motors. Order your Renault 191 today and avail of low APR finance, cashback, and three-year servicing. Visit Blackstone Motors today or see blackstonemotors.ie.
2: You're welcome to Late Lunch this Wednesday afternoon straight to business. My first guest is familiar to and with the Northeast. after spending a couple of spells working at Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda. I'm sure there are many listeners today out there who have had children in the care of Professor Alf Nicholson who is currently Head of Paediatrics at the Royal College of Surgeons Medical School and will later this year take up a new position in Bahrain as Head of the Medical School there. Alf, it is truly great to see you again on the show. Thanks for joining me. It's likewise great Back. Welcome back to Drahada, may I say, today. Do you remember, I want to go way back, 81, you came to Drahada after completing your studies at UCD. Yes.
3: Do you remember that first day work, walking into the Lourdes? Of course I do. Uh, I remember it very well. I remember firstly that Drahada, because uh, students came up there to do some you know, study and to be taught very well, had a massively Strong reputation as a great teaching hospital, had a strong reputation as having a fantastic res, which it does and did. Uh, and also, uh, so 10 out of my class, uh, which is a relatively small class, decided that we would come up to Drata, see what it was like, break away from home, and enjoy. And we really, really enjoyed every moment. Of that two-year period.
2: Where did you stay? Did you get, get digs in town straight away? Oh, gosh, no, 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 no.
3: They had the state-of-the-art res. You had
2: the doctor's which residence. Which was so you yes.
3: uh, fantastic. Yeah. And uh, all the interns stayed there and lived in for the mm. whole year, first year. And then most people got kept on for a second year, if you did anyway decently, during the first year. And you... you Satisfied the consultants and the team, so it was a, it was a really well run hospital. It was certainly, to our mind, a, a very very good hospital. Mm. It still is a very good yes. hospital, and it's and a very big hospital and a hospital with a great teaching ethos and a and a really positive atmosphere. And we really enjoyed it. So they kept you for the second year for
2: sure, and you just about <laughs> when when you come in at that stage after college, was it always? paediatrics for you then did you know well, you were going I that think,
3: road see that, no I didn't See, I, I think that I, I kind of knocked off things rather than chose things as such I knew I wasn't technically great so I wasn't going to be a surgeon I didn't have any great desire to do general practice as such but I, I did find dealing with children really positive positive. Now, when I was a young boy and I went to school, I was best friends with a little guy called Tommy and he had a congenital heart problem and sadly died while we were in medical school. So I think that that kind of might have steered me a little bit as well. Uh, but whatever it was, I always liked children. I always felt comfortable when dealing with them and knew how stressed their parents were and was able to handle that additional strain as well. So, and I did paediatrics in Drogheda first up. And Dr. Joe Sullivan and Anne Murphy were the two pediatricians. And you know, we had a great time. We really, really enjoyed every moment of it. So mm-hmm. that became the profession for me.
2: I, I, I can remember back there then myself, and I'm just thinking, the, the old maternity it was it was in Beechgrove at that stage, was it? Was, it was, yeah.
3: So you had to kind of go uphill, <laughs> down dale. Uh, and it was a very exciting place. There was a kind of Mrs. McElgorm uh, ran the... Uh, the kind of special care baby unit and it really really was uh, a very enjoyable time and it certainly cemented my interest in paediatrics by working there
2: you mentioned a fine hospital and of course it was in the ownership and they built it and set it up mother mary martin and the nuns as well they really had hands they were hands-on at that stage they were deeply yeah, involved So
3: there was a uh, an administrator called sister denise who kind of ran the hospital very well so if you happen to slip out at lunchtime and you're under the interns and uh, somebody was carrying your bleep or maybe carrying three or four bleeps, she had the awful lack of being able to uh, detect <laughs> somehow this and, uh, and maybe bleep all of you at the same time. So it was very obvious that she... So, but it, it was a great atmosphere. Mm. Uh, the nuns ran the place really well. And I know there's a bit of a debate going on as to what the hospital's name should be right now. Have
2: you a view on that?
3: Uh, well, I mean, I, th- I, th- I, think, uh, I think times move on. Uh, and I think the influence of the medical missions of Mary has receded in terms of their day-to-day influence. I wouldn't be averse to a change. I, I wouldn't be averse to it. But people always refer to the hospital on the hill as the Lourdes. And I think that's going to be hard to change. And why Why do you really want to change it? I mean, I know we live in a multicultural, multi-religious society and that you know, no particular ethos would take precedence. But I think um, it's always been called the Lourdes. That's what everyone refers it to as uh, and I think that's that's okay by me. I, I wouldn't have a strong view either way. I wouldn't like to dip my toe in the water just arriving <laughs> and <laughs> cause a stir. But no, I think uh, I, I think the name has always been the Lourdes and uh, it's stood the town very well over the years. And I think it's been a great hospital to work in. Fine view, and you're entitled
2: to have it as well, and thanks for for expressing it to us today. Now, you moved on from Drogheda after those couple of years, Sligo, Hollis Street, Temple Street, first in Ireland, all those three places. Yes. Did you
4: spend
3: much time in each of those? Just a short time in Sligo, yeah. uh, which we, I liked very much, and then I went straight into Hollis Street, and that's where we came across n- newborn care, so care of the very premature... Baby particularly, and I liked that very much. Uh, it was very tiring and very stressful. In fact, only about three months ago, I met uh, a young man who had a young child uh, who was one of the first uh, b- premature babies that I actually put a little chest strain in to, to to allow him to survive and He had a very unusual name i won 't tell you what it was uh, and I remember the name because I remember the night and, and I, like everything in pediatrics, you tend to remember the dramatic events. And sometimes you'd also re- tend to remember the sad events, you know, where the, a child dies or a baby dies. And they, they have an effect on people. And in my role as a training director for paediatricians nationally, I think we do have to really inform and, and steer and train and support young trainees. When something bad happens, it has a huge effect on people.
2: So you met that guy who has, was a dad now himself. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, and and the, he showed me the scar. So. He <laughs> did a good job, that a real yeah, that's good that's job. <laughs> And then short stints then, uh, another short stint then followed when you went to Temple Street before you And I think there
3: I kind of then went, that's where I suppose the um, whole idea of being a teacher uh, and Mm. I like teaching. Very much uh, and being in responsible for medical students and, and how they actually learn the craft of paediatrics to, to a certain level. That's where I, what I did in Temp Street largely. I worked with both Professor Dennis Gill and Professor Neil Doherty, and the, I really enjoy that.
2: Manchester was your next
3: port of call, so you decided to leave these shores. Well, every, in those days, you know, there really was no alternative. Mm. Uh, nowadays, there's very long, long standing and, and very good training programs, but in those days, you just had to. You had to go uh, and go somewhere. And there was no guarantee whatsoever that you would ever come back. And in fact, a, a fair number of our year have never come back to Ireland. So they've, they've settled in Canada or they've settled in Australia or they went to England or Wales. And that's where they, they grew up and all the children grew up so so I went to Manchester a really busy fantastic hospital in St Mary's in the centre of Manchester and that was tough Uh, that was a good grounding in uh, you know newborn intensive care and all that kind of thing Uh, and then luckily uh, by chance um, they had a rotation with Melbourne which is you know a a fantastic new hospital not unlike the new children's hospital being planned for Ireland um, in size and in everything else and that chance was too good to... to so Australia go. called and Alf went. And you spent three years, did you, in Melbourne? Yeah, yeah, I yeah, loved Melbourne. I'm not sure if any of your listeners have been to there or their children have been there, but it's a fantastic... We were there recently. I, I had to give a 30 years later grand rounds to the hospital that I kind of grew up in. And it was very nice. And it is, they've rebuilt the hospital, an even more modern hospital with a mini zoo in it and all sorts of electronic things. And it's uh, it was a great place to work and a, and a great place to learn more about pediatrics. So here's the question: You
2: said a moment ago out of your year, most of them went away and stayed away. You came back after those three years. Was that uh, you know your plan, or how did that happen?
3: Well, like everything in life, um, you know um, some. Times people ask you, you know, was this all planned or did it just happen? And I'm sure most people listening would be of the same mind that most things just happen. You know, so you, you meet the love of your life and the, you get married. You, you, she's also from Ireland, that's Helen. And you um, you are hoping to have a family someday. You would possibly like them to be closer to their grandparents, which we certainly did. And a job suddenly comes up for a new paediatric department in Mullingar. No paediatricians there before and he said, "God, that sounds that could be good." Uh, so I interviewed and got that job uh, and came back from Melbourne, the big metropolis, to Mullingar in the centre of Ireland. <laughs> so I'm mean, just trying
2: to picture that Alf in my so mind. So nowadays
3: people do have <laughs> difficulty recruiting to hospitals, not least the Leir's Hospital, but all even the Dublin hospitals, because uh, people, for whatever reason, don't really want to come back. And, but in those days, you would give your eye, tooth to get back to Ireland to any hospital and I came back to Mullingar.
2: So you met Helen in Australia yeah, well, and you're you
3: were from Do you know beforehand? Yes. And
2: then, <laughs> Come on, and then tell she us about that Australia. love story. She went out She there, went to Australia. Did you follow uh, her? Or did she follow
3: for, you? Well, there's a bit, of, I think certainly me following her, that was the that was the way it worked and I'm delighted to do so and uh, it's been fantastic ever since <laughs> Isn't that before Love great. Children. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And we're going to talk about those, uh, your children, in, in a few moments. Um, so I can see a title for another book and you, you've written a few at this stage from Melbourne to Mullingar. Just keep it in <laughs> mind someday if you're looking for a title for something. Something. <laughs> so sure. back you came to Mullingar in
3: 1990 and you spent, what, five to six years there, was About it? About six years there and ironically the the great and, and the one and only Joe Smith was the coach to the team that I played for. I used to play rugby in Boyne or, or, as it is now or Drogheda as it was then mm. uh, and um, I was very interested in rugby and t- coaching and he came along as a very young teacher with his young wife kelly and he transformed the rugby club and the whole ethos of the place in Mullingar, in mullingar well there's during that something same time.
2: i did not know
3: so we, and we've remained friends he's a wonderful person and he um he basically and i uh, and i he coached the team and i was i played a little bit with mullingar coached some teams there but I, Oh, there, we only had two paediatricians, very few junior staff. So I did spend a lot of my time working and I did spend a, lot of my, a lot of my time on call. In fact, for the first six months or so, I was the only paediatrician there. So I didn't leave the place for, for a whole six months. <laughs> <laughs> but it was great as a young um, and you know relatively healthy person, um, enthusiastic to beat the band. It was a really great place to start and to start a new paediatric department was even more exciting.
2: Mullingar, we're at at the moment with Alf Nicholson. Professor Alf Nicholson, he's coming back to draw and I want to find out all about this. Stay with us on Late Lunch, the big interview on the show today. <laughs> Professor Alf Nicholson. Have you or your children ever been cared for by Professor Alf Nicholson? He's with me. He's my special guest on Late Lunch today. If you'd like to send him a message, eighteen fifty seven one five nine five eight is the phone number or don't forget the text and WhatsApp. That's 86 and Leah and Patrick Coleman have been in touch with me already, Alf. I take it, you know, they say, would you please wish, Alf, all the very best for the future? Thank you from our hearts for looking after us when we were diagnosed with diabetes. You I know remember them? remember them well, yeah.
3: Do yeah, you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so um, I, th- I think... Uh, and it's it. I don't want in any way for people. If I'm um, uh, going into a new role in Bahrain, to think that I'm just going to uh, leave everything go. And yes. I think the patients who have been or are patients of mine. Will be looked after uh, and there will be an orderly transition process.
2: (laughs) He wants to make that clear (laughs)
3: today. Anyway, don't worry about Bahrain for a minute. Come back those
2: few years. Mullingar, fantastic. You played rugby. You met Joe Smith. You were at the start of something very special there in an EU unit. You spent five to six years there. What took you or what called you back
3: to draw I I think, firstly, there was a phone call from Dr Joe Sullivan, who was my mentor and uh, certainly a person I really respected. And I had such a positive experience in Drada that I I thought I would like to um, come back uh, and develop teaching more so and and actually work in a bigger unit, a unit where they had newborn care to a much greater degree. And I I really enjoyed it. It was tough at times though in Drada because there were, you know, the big crisis that occurred, the Lourdes Inquiry, the Michael Neary process before that. And that all kind of was a backdrop to the first. Five or six years. That Does that really
2: affect you
3: and staff and morale and the hugely, whole place? Hugely, because you could see the effect on not just the new appointees but the nurses, the doctors, um, the, the staff right through the hospital um, when they could see that their hospital was being profiled in a negative way across the national media for a good long period of time. And I think we learned, and I think Ireland learned a lot of lessons from that whole process and i think um you know when you are dealing with you know difficult situations in medicine and when maybe a colleague is not performing perhaps as well as they should i think as a friend as a colleague you owe it to yourself and to to the patients at large to try and ensure if you can that that something happens to change that mm. and i think that's the big lesson from the whole mm. thing and that's a lesson we still haven't always learned in this country and other hospitals have taken of late in terms of adverse events uh, smaller hospitals some big hospitals uh, so it's a, it's a national thing but the Lourdes Hospital was the first of the major crises yeah. and I think that hit the public imagination or, 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 or you know that was, became obvious so and I think that was a backdrop to the first six years while I was there so I came back because I had such a massively positive experience and I still had a very positive experience, but it was difficult at times during that for not just me, but for all members of staff uh, in the hospital and, there's, and who are still working in the hospital to this day.
2: And you came back to a new maternity unit, a new area of care for newborns as well. And who, who are the other paediatricians
3: there? You mentioned Joe a moment ago who, who rang you. Yeah, and then Anne Murphy is still there and yes. then Siobhan Gormley, who's still there. Mm. Uh, and then uh, after after I'd gone or soon after I'd gone, the, the number has expanded expanded hugely now, so there are about, I think, 10 paediatricians in, in Drahada currently. Uh, they have their own emergency area for children uh, that are acutely unwell. They've got their own special care baby unit. Um, and they're a very, very busy place. And our trainees... Come from Dublin to to Drahada in big numbers, and they like the place very much. At the start of
2: life, it's very precarious for some children who are born prematurely, are born with difficult conditions. From you began, like 81, you took your first first steps, and we're here in 2019, these years later. Medical science, technology, all leaping forward to making a huge difference.
3: Yes, I, I think. Well, I think, and I can kind of, the book is one is a kind of reflection of that to a degree. Um, but I th- I think we've never ever had healthier children in this country, and yet they are coming to hospital and to outpatients in ever increasing numbers. And I don't un- quite understand why that is so. Uh, I think it's because uh, parents are even more worried than ever about the children because of the internet, because of the information through the internet. And I think uh, we do have to change the way we do things. Now, there's been huge advances. So, for instance, a young child with a heart problem is not picked up often before they're born and they have appropriate treatment. They have fantastic outcomes. A child with leukaemia... In the past, a death sentence now has a a very, very, very high chance of normal survival. A a child with diabetes uh, is going to do much better than before because of all the advances that have taken place. So just about and there's been so much vaccination changes and vaccination improvements uh, and, of course, improvements in newborn care. So now uh, the essence of it is that parents have a right to expect that their young child will survive and survive well into their adult life and be able to to do well in life Um, but not everybody can do it and I I think that the problem with it nowadays is that uh, that there is so much expectation uh, of normality that when things aren't quite right um, people have a huge sense of disappointment and distress mm. Mm. And, and and that point you make you still can't put your finger on that
2: despite the fact and you said that i saw that quotation from you that children are healthier than ever yet numbers increase with children coming for attention by medical yeah. people across the board i think so. Can, you can't put your finger on why what? is it
3: just the internet or is it what is it? Is it a fear? Is it a phobia? Well, I, think, that, I think people have children later in life. That's yep. for sure. Um, I think um, they have fewer of them. Mm. Uh, I think they're more the average, precious to them. They're very precious. They have always were precious, yes. but they're they're extremely precious, and they. It is very i mean it is a learned craft I believe child rearing and when you 've got a sick child, um, if you have your mother or your aunt or your greater family close to you, they can offer you advice as to how to manage things but all those sort of networks are not as strong as they used to be, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that has changed a little bit the picture but whatever it is it 's an international phenomenon that across the world, children are surviving more or have never been healthier but they are requiring um, more attention. And I think things have changed too. I mean, allergy is much more prevalent. I think mental health issues is much more prevalent. And I think um, anxiety-related issues, and I know Harry Barry was on the... Radio RT Radio today talking about that. They're much more prevalent mm. in early, even relatively early in childhood. Yes, indeed,
2: it is a big problem. And Harry has spoken to us a number of times about it as well. Now you put down roots here. You built a home and term in Your children went to school in the local school there. You played golf in the golf club. And uh, rugby. In a manner matter speaking,
3: <laughs> <laughs> rugby was your passion as well. You have four four children. Yes. W- where are they? They must be well uh, on now. The four children, they're all grown up. Uh, so the eldest, Katie, is in London. And she's an architect and she works there and has done for the last few years. And she's very happy and likes London very much. Uh, The second boy called Mark, uh, he's in New York and he's going back to studies in New York University. So he's uh, doing very well uh, and enjoying life there. And the third is uh, Mary Louise and she's in Sydney and she works um, in restaurants and so on. She's a foodie. And the youngest guy called Alfie, he's in Dublin still studying so they're, they're all over the world. What an
2: international clan you have.
3: Yes. <laughs> Just think of the places you can
2: go to and say, yeah, hey, I'm coming over for a break. Do they well, want you?
3: Well, they do. Uh, they, they uh, We have been, to, we were in Australia, of course, to, yes. to uh, I was doing that lecture, but we also, of course, saw Mary Louise in in, in, in Sydney and had a great time. So she's she's very happy there. Mm. And most young people in the modern Ireland that we're in uh, do like to travel yeah. and of course they're much more accessible to you I mean through WhatsApp through Skype <laughs> through whatever else uh, it's very easy to be in contact even though time.
2: you're not a social media person he's the first guest uh, I've had in this studio in a long time when we inquired is he on Facebook is he on Twitter is he on Instagram he's on N- none of them none of them at all well, I've maybe put- that is a
3: salutary lesson for us today to avoid stress (laughs) stay off social media (laughs) well Uh, maybe it is Uh, we we leave well I know there's a there's a lot of discussion um, nationally and internationally about when should a young person a child have a mobile phone and you know What age is reasonable for them to to be engaged in social media activities? And it is a difficult area Mm. because it's so available and it's so much the norm nowadays. I mean, believe it or not, when I started working as a consultant in Mullingar, there were no mobile phones available to me. So it only came in as a great big clunky one. Maybe two or three years later. Yeah. So that sounds like prehistory <laughs> when you think about it now. <laughs> they don't believe you when you It's called them Stone them Age man stuff. Uh, I'm going to a break, but
2: just before I do, do you remember the night I met you with them on the rocks and claw our head and the mackerel?
3: Oh yes, yeah, well <laughs> I, I, we, we still have a little place in Flower Cove. Yeah. in and in Clara and we do come up in the summer. Yes. But the children have all kind of flown the nests as yeah. such. But when they were younger we used to love to fish for mackerel. down on the rocks. I remember me on the Very f- dangerous board. place. Oh, but listen, but uh, you'd have to watch but, plenty mackerel. but you see
2: we had a pediatrician where this event thing happened, <laughs> so we knew everything was alright, even for a big child like me. Professor Alf Nicholson is staying with me on late lunch and we're gonna to get to his book, the second edition of When Your Child Is Sick. It's the Bible, I can tell you. Back back with Alf after news and weather. Alf, I knew they'd remember you well and we're getting lots of messages. Let me just pick out a couple of them here that I have to hand at the moment. Hi, Jerry. I remember taking my then five-year-old to see Dr. Alf in Drogheda. He just wouldn't eat. He said to us, don't be worried about him. And I can safely say today he was 100% right. He's now 21. He comes home, doesn't really talk to me, just asks, what's for dinner? And he's over six foot tall. Another of your success stories, Alf, as well with simple advice. And another one. Here, you might remember this one. Uh, I'm delighted to hear dr nicholson with you on the show today he is the man who took great care of my son jamie who was born by emergency section at 26 weeks in 1996 in our lady of lords and the great care he gave us is just marvelous we thank him and we thank the special care team they'll always be in our prayers yeah. isn't that a lovely That's message I you I probably remember, re- you remember that yeah, child yeah. there as well and more they come as well let's move on with with the chat um I want to talk about your book. When your child is sick, I have to say to you, I remember when you launched the first one in 2009, you came to me then and we talked about it and it subsequently become the Bible for parents. And there's now a revised edition has come out within the last couple of years here. Um, has, has a lot changed from 2009
3: to the new one? I think not Not a lot. It's, a. It's a. It's a, It's a, a, I think, an improved version, but there's a, there's a section in there now, of course, on adolescent mental health issues uh, because I think that to me over the past seven or eight years has been this striking change and in fact pre-adolescent mental health issues as well so that the young person who is prone to depression or has anxiety symptoms or who has delivered self-harm and, and all that sort of um, um, difficult areas to deal with and to try and give parents some steer as to when they should be concerned about an eating disorder when they should be concerned about low mood etc and they're all um, I think very important areas um, of paediatrics right now
2: Okay and that's the add-on in the new book and very important it is as well Let's talk for, for a bit about small children and babies which is where your speciality emanates from When you have a, a new baby and a, a child that's very young and can't express how they're feeling
3: to you it, it's one of the greatest challenges to decide what to do How are they? Yes, I think it is. Uh, And obviously, you're dependent as a doctor, be it you're a GP or a paediatrician, on uh, the mother, mainly, sometimes the dad, but mainly the mother and her instincts. Uh, And they're very powerful mum's instincts. So if a mother is innately worried about her young baby or her young child and she can't put a a name on it or an exact term on it, I think as a doctor or as a nurse, you should be worried as well. And I think that time and time again, it's been proven many, many times that maternal instinct trumps everything else. So with all the knowledge in the world, uh, with all the best will in the world, if a mother is still concerned about particularly a young infant, uh, that he's not quite right or is behaving a bit differently. Um, by and large she's proved correct seek medical attention which is normally what you need to do straight away I think I I see the problem with the internet process and the Google process Dr Google is that you are you you write in a word uh, let's say headache and before long you're convinced your child has got meningitis or a brain tumour, uh, because that's what flashes up very quickly. So I think um, for parents, it's just to try and use your common sense and your own instincts. And I think more and more that I do pediatrics and the longer I've been in it, the more I respect maternal instinct. And I think particularly with for young babies, because mums spend in an inordinate length of time with their young infant and they get to know them very well and they get to know their ways and they get to know whether they're feeding properly or whether they're behaving normally. And if they're not, um, it could be a, a simple thing like a viral infection that's causing it. But if it's a bit more than that and they're displaying other features, it's up to you, the doctor, to try and respect that. Find out what our concerns are and um you know reassure it if it's appropriate like the the f- he's not feeding sort of thing uh but if it's not appropriate to really take it seriously and investigate further
2: you mentioned this, and you know yeah. you know yourself you're listening to the news watching television reading newspapers and it's everywhere at the moment and uh, some have unfortunately lost their lives because of it um, what's your view on, on on the vaccination thing you know 2016 november 2016 child po- children post that have got the vaccine yeah would you get it if, if your child hasn't got I th- it
3: i think the, the issue here is is probably um there's there's two things at stake here first thing is that um you know every parent has a right um, i think to do the best by their young child um, the case of meningitis nowadays believe it or not and i've, I've lived through the year where we had very little vaccination against meningitis so i've seen it right throughout my career vast numbers of children with meningitis and all the effects of that and believe it or not now okay there's been a small clustering of cases in the last while that's that's certainly no disregard to those who've been affected by it Uh, but it's a really tiny blip compared to what the rate of meningitis used to be years ago Um, and that's because of vaccination. And I think the big difference is that now we don't see a variety of types of meningitis at all because of successful vaccination. But the problem is that there is now a vaccine programme for meningococcal B, which was enacted in 2016 for the young infants. Yes. And only those young infants. And of course, people outside of that group can get meningococcal B. But all the cases of latest, to my knowledge, have been meningococcal C, so a different type. So... I, I would say, if you're very concerned, there is a big cost and a cost that most families actually cannot bear. You know, essentially three or four hundred euros to successfully vaccinate each other. And I, I don't like a situation where your ability to pay defines whether you can be vaccinated. Um, one of the areas of vaccination that isn't on the national programme is chickenpox vaccination. And it is in most European countries in North America the standard part of the vaccination program, and believe it or not, chickenpox, although people regard it as a minor illness, is it can be a very, very serious illness with lots of complications. So, I think, I mean, by and large, I would say, um, I don't like to, to recommend a vaccine if you have to pay for it uh, because I think it should be free to everybody. Mm. Uh, and I think at the moment, um, even though it's a worry, the rate of meningococcal B. Meningitis outside those very young infants is really tiny. And probably not quite enough to justify mass vaccination.
2: Okay, government, are yeah. you listening? Come on, <laughs> let's uh, get a, some subsidy for this. It's very, very important and, and should be done. You know, when you have a child that, you know, when you talk about, say, April to October, generally it's plain sailing with children. When I'm talking about chest infections, colds, tonsillitis, all that type of stuff. But then when November rings in, for Disaster. some people, they're never away from the GP surgery until
3: March turns round.
2: Is there anything you can do to.
3: Well, I mean, I think you've got to think firstly about it. Um, is that uh, a lot of children nowadays do spend their time uh, or part of their day in amongst other children, so in a crash environment, um, that does increase your risk of getting a viral infection. And the average, this is the average young child under two, gets somewhere between six and ten viral infections a year, and they're usually clustered in the winter. So you can be pretty sure. That from let's say September right through to May, uh, that every three or four weeks a young child who's you know either at home or in a crash environment is going to get some sort of viral infection, but they shouldn't become chesty with it, and they shouldn't have a prolonged illness and if they're coughing a lot at night or coughing a lot in the morning or wheezy uh, and they they need you know to go to the doctor for each episode, they probably have something else, mm. and most often they have early asthma that's that's what we see and asthma has exploded uh, diabetes has gone up a lot in the last few years but asthma now affects about almost one in five young children in this country and it tends to be worse in the winter time it tends to be affected or brought on by viral infections and it tends to present with a cough that just won't go away or the cough that keeps coming back and I think so we, we diagnose asthma a lot and what you're describing is probably you know a young child who either is prone to asthma or already has asthma. Mm. Uh, and uh, So
2: there's no way. It's, it's where they move in the, in the creche or the school and with their friends. I think in the, like in the, the, in the creche the...
3: environment, they share all the toys and, of course, they share all the viruses. Um, and it's an inevitable part of growing up that you are going to... Because of vaccination, we don't see very many serious bacterial infections. Yeah. But because of vaccination and because of the allergy that seems to go along with that, in our wealthy country that we are in, uh, we see an awful lot more allergic disease like eczema asthma and rhinitis
2: if you have to have an antibiotic or a child does or maybe a succession with them in that period of the year that you're talking about they have to have it. You know the way people worry, Alf, about antibiotics and their side effects or afterwards, you yes. know, trying to help them. You often hear that it affects their stomach and things and yeah. like that. It's yeah. hard it on them.
3: I mean, antibiotics are hard on the system. I suppose you have to – this is where it's very difficult being a GP. So what you do want as a GP is to maybe miss a serious illness and that – perhaps an infection of the chest or meningitis, heaven forbid, or something like that that did require an early antibiotic to perhaps maybe stave it off Um, but in fact um, this is where it gets quite tricky for a GP, Um, the vast majority of children presenting with a temperature or unwell have probably got a viral illness uh, and that declares itself over time now in a hospital setting we have hours to observe a child, a GP has got 7 or 8 minutes to just eyeball them and to take a good history And sometimes um, that can be very difficult. So, I I think what we need to try and do is to try and empower people to say, listen, you know, I think your child's okay, um, but we're depending on you to signal if you're worried in a few hours and come back. And if the temperature isn't settling, maybe to get things reviewed. Okay. But I don't like the idea of, of prescribing antibiotics. one after another. Yeah.
2: It's just a couple of things before we finish up today. The National Children's Hospital, uh, you alluded to it earlier, is in the news again today. They're in before the Public Accounts Committee. The spend overrun there. People just look at this and think, here we go again. Why,
3: Why has it been such a mess? Uh, That's a good question. Uh, I I think it isn't really a mess. Um, I think it is much more expensive than perhaps it should be. Uh, And I think um, the reason for that is probably kind of related to the vagaries of building and, and all that kind of stuff that I don't understand very well. Is it good value for money? I think it will be. I mean, I know what exists in Melbourne, which costs around about the same 1.5 billion uh, Australian dollars. And when you actually see it in action, it is fantastic. But what I have to say... Uh, and what I've been doing for the past six or seven years is trying to develop a system whereby all the boats rise so the only worry I have about spending so much money in a children's hospital is that you don't or you cannot spend as much money. Let's say for instance the paediatric department in Our Lady of which is relatively old fashioned um, and not as up and modern as it could be in terms of its infrastructure. Brilliant people are working there. So I, what I would like to see is that that would be upgraded um, to s- such a level that a person living in North Dublin or in Lowther mead would say well that 's a place i 'd like to go. Uh, it has the same standards and the same expectations as as uh, as a parent or you have the same exp- as you would have in the new children 's hospital and the danger of not developing particularly the hospitals around dublin um is that it will draw people in to the main children's hospital site and that would be not a good thing for the hospital and maybe not a good thing for the people because it will overcrowd it very quickly so my concern would be that and i'm saying this on lmfm that it is really critically important um to develop the infrastructure of the pediatric unit within drada so that it matches in terms of single bedrooms and all the facilities that parents should expect in a modern hospital so that it matches as closely as it can what will be available in the new children's hospital and that the two are linked together in terms of the staff maybe working in both places and the branding is the same. And I think that applies particularly around Dublin, but also applies around the country. So that what you cannot have is a situation whereby you have to get to Dublin or, you know, you you don't expect the same level of care. Of course, the specialised care is at a higher level because there are so many more specialists there. But the basic care for your child with asthma or your child acutely unwell should be exactly the same. And that's a critical point. And I think the uh, over expenditure on the hospital in Dublin, if that affects the ability to develop units such as Drogheda and Mullingar and Port and Wexford, who are in the, and Kilkenny, the closest to Dublin and indeed around the country, well then that's a bad thing. Uh, But the overall expense, if you compare it to what we squandered on Allied Irish Bank, is minuscule and the actual benefit over a 30-year period is so great. I, I wouldn't be too worried about the actual expense, but I'd be very concerned that we spread that yeah. uh, across the country. Very interesting.
2: Yeah. Very interesting point indeed. You're involved in the strategy in delivering Children's health care, and you have been for the last number of years. And just one thing uh, that jumps out at everybody is this obesity epidemic mm. and children presenting, you know, with weights. I'm sure you've seen it uh, more than anybody else and your colleagues as well. At a time when,
3: you know, it's health, you're saying children's health is better than ever, but this is the big bogey, isn't it? It is, it is a big bogey. Um, we do have a specialized clinic in Temple Street, but it's for high end, really. Difficult to control obesity. All the latest suggests one thing, uh, and this is a very important thing, is that it is really hard to treat obesity in children or in adults. And the vast majority of people who try, who are obese, who try to lose weight, don't succeed very well or they, they regress very quickly. So prevention is the name of the game. So what we have to do is to ensure that preschool children in Ireland. Uh, are managed in such a way with maybe sugar taxes and everything else so that they are less inclined to become obese in the first place. That's not easy to do. It's that starts before they're starts even there. born. It starts right at the beginning. It starts at, at the word, from the word go. And I think that so breastfeeding is important um, and avoiding sugary drinks and, and you probably have seen those programmes by Dr. Ava and others mm. uh, about the startling amount of sugar that children take bad for the teeth but bad makes makes them more likely to become obese so i kind of have a great sense that ready to pop the question the jewelers at blue have got sparkled down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments
1: their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds and they're ready to ship to your door
3: and certainly treating obese adults is also much too late what we need to really try very hard to do is to prevent it and that is a national strategy thing yeah. absolutely so I mean having advertisements on the national hmm. television uh, or radio for fast food and, and uh, sugar drinks uh, is really quite against what should happen flies in the, the face yeah.
2: of, of what you're talking about Your next port of call later this year in the autumn time is Bahrain. And I'm sure you're excited about this challenge for the next three years, yes? Just for three years.
3: So I will hopefully be back. But I think uh, during this period, um, I've been asked to head up the medical school, which is a big honour. I'm delighted about that. And to actually experience something different. So medical students from around the Middle East and also from North America coming to study under the College of Surgeons. So it is linked to RCSI in Dublin. Uh, and to try and develop the best possible experience and to develop the best possible doctors from that group that we can. I think we are trying to change the way we train doctors because we know... Uh, people are different now and the needs of the community is different and the expectations of doctors is still very high uh, but how they perform their role hasn't changed very much. It's about being professional and caring and empathising with people. It's not about knowledge acquisition because we know now that essentially if you just look up on your mobile phone you can find out just about everything. Uh, So it is really about making not just um, scholars but really professional doctors of the highest quality that can actually deliver their trade uh, internationally. That's that's what we're hoping to do. So that's my mission over in Bahrain. It'll mean I won't be doing the paediatrics that I love to the same level for a period of time, but I'm excited about the change and... And one of the things that we have done, and happily Helen has been happy to do it as well, to a point, uh, is that um, we have moved a lot and and tried to um, re-energise by changing tack and by doing things that I love to do.
2: Well, I wish you well and uh, Bahrain is a, a warm part of the world. It it's quite is. different to <laughs> hear you realise that you've been out there already and you know what's, what's ahead of you. The other thing is, uh, we mentioned Joe Schmidt early on in the conversation and you're coming into contact with him when you were playing rugby in Mullingar and he was there in his formative days um,
3: the Soccer World Cup is only round the corner, so to speak, from you. It is, yeah. I don't think the two countries get on terribly well, Qatar mm. and Bahrain, but there, it is literally a 40-minute flight from one to the other, I think. Yeah, so, so it's a, could we be want the Republic of Ireland to qualify, really. Well, that, that could be tough, uh, but hopefully yeah. it will happen. Yeah. And if they do, um, you know, there'll be plenty of people probably... <laughs> Banging God. on my door. <laughs> <laughs> for There's for another, bed and breakfast accommodation. another aspect to this business yeah. as well. Helen is going to go with you ultimately. Yes, yes. she is. Yeah, and yeah. I don't know, I think. One of our children, Alfie, is still studying in Dublin. So I think it'll be kind of back and forth. The one thing about Barbarian, is beautiful this time of the year, but it is a bit very, very hot in the summer. But luckily, mm. the academic year allows me to come back home during the summertime. Okay, so you'll be back. Be, you'll be, be on the links
2: in Baltray, will you? <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> you'll be able to get a bit of golf in during that
3: time. You've had a wonderful career, haven't you? Well, it's not over yet. I mean, no, I, I don't no, feel kind of far, like... Yeah. Uh, uh, but and uh, I, I remember well, when I was in Melbourne years ago, very fine uh, and senior paediatrician said to me, you know, working in a hospital or in a healthcare system is like being... Um, a, a passenger on a great big juggernaut lorry that's on, on, on a motorway. So you can jump on and jump off and the lorry keeps on moving and you really have to make the best of your time there and, and hopefully make a difference while you're on the lorry. That's what I've tried to do. You (laughs) certainly
2: have made a difference and I have more messages coming to me there in the lives of many, many people who have had children in your care and who are adults, as you mentioned earlier on today, uh, with their own children as well. Uh, Thank you, Alf, for all you've done for everybody over the years and thank you for coming back to us today because I know you have a very special affinity with the North Eastern Ireland as well. And good luck to you and Helen and your children with this uh, big move and challenge over the next three years. And please, God, we'll meet again. When you retire, I certainly hope so. Get Jerry. an update yeah. from you. Alf Nicholson, the Professor Alf Nicholson, thank you so much.
0: The late lunch with Blackstone Motors. Order your Renault 191 today and avail of low APR finance, cashback, and three year servicing. Visit Blackstone Motors today or see blackstonemotors.ie.
2: Tommy Fleming he is a huge following in the Northeast. I know he brings his latest Voice of Hope 2 tour to the Knightsbrook Hotel in Trim on Sunday the 27th of January. That's the final Sunday of the month. There are a few tickets left. Contact the hotel or Ticketmaster if you'd like to go along to that one. I have a pair of tickets to give away today on Late Lunch and a Voice of Hope 2 CD or DVD. You can have one or the other. So you'll get the tickets plus the CD or the DVD, whatever you want. How do you win them? You get texting and WhatsApping straight away to 086-1800-658. Here's the question. In what year was Tommy Fleming born? In what year was Tommy born? Was it 70, 71 or 72? Take your pick. I'll give you multiple choice there. 70, 71 or 72? 086-1800-658 for tickets to Tommy at the Knightsbrook on Sunday, January 27th. Best of luck to you on that one there. Now, my next guests are a wife and husband artistic team, a fusion of Belgium and Ireland. They create, display and sell their works from their studio in the Millmount Craft Quarter in Drada. They also sell online and have a busy year ahead, including a major commission for the Arts Festival. I'm delighted to welcome to Late Lunch Declan Kelly and Els, I want you to do the pronunciation. I was going to have a go at it myself, but I want you to do it in your beautiful Belgian accent. Els
5: Borchardt is my name.
2: Borchardt. (laughs) book out is that okay yes not bad not bad I'm I'm getting close to it there anyway thank you both for joining me on the show today thank you very much love stories begin in Sligo IT come on take up the story from there (laughs) Well, we first
5: met 15 years ago when I was on Erasmus in Sligo, the exchange programme. So I studied in Sligo IT for four months and on a casual sunny afternoon, the two of us got talking for the first time.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And come on, uh, Declan, did it? Take off like a a house on fire from that moment on.
4: I I wish I could say it took off, um, but (laughs) we didn't speak again for another eight or nine months. Um, I don't think I had hair at the time, and it was dyed blonde, (laughs) so it probably didn't leave a brilliant impression. Um, So we had a chat. In fact, I was asking Els about going on Erasmus to Belgium, and I wanted to know how it was going for her and did she enjoy it and. And she convinced me very quickly it was the way to go. But we didn't speak again until I arrived in Belgium a year or so later. Um, And I suppose that's when we really met properly. It sparked then, did it else?
5: Yes, very quickly. um, I was asked by actually my school, could I show Declan around the city of Ghent a little bit? And so we ended up um, going to parties and having lots of late night coffees. And very quickly we knew we were having the same outlook on art and on life and um, I suppose great similar sense of humour as well.
2: <laughs> okay but you were only on Erasmus over there. How long were you there for? I was over there for four months as well. Okay so. so it's it's. I'm thinking of how it started in Sligo. It's like planting one of these seeds in the ground and it sits there for about eight months and then it comes up above the ground and then it springs to life in Belgium
4: but you had to come home. Oh yes uh, yeah I mean uh, so we did the long distance but well, luckily we had the summer. We had uh, music festivals I'm sure. Yeah obviously but what big fans of music and that's a big part of our life as well uh, artistically but also kind of the, what's going in the years as well is a big deal for us uh, so we that summer I had planned to go back to Belgium for uh, a few weeks and um, we went to Rock Wechter which is a big festival in Belgium very famous and, uh, and then I, I went back to college the following year but we just kept doing the long distance we just we kept making it work we kept you know, raising a few quid and obviously thanks to, you know, cheap flights these days <laughs> we were able to still make it work, you know.
2: It's a tough long distance. Is it tough to keep it alive?
5: It, it was, especially at the time where social media and the internet, you know, I'm talking 14 years yeah. ago, were not as yes. present yet, you know. But there was telephones and there was the early days of Skype and there was cards and love letters, <laughs> a little bit.
2: <laughs> Do you still have them? I do. Oh, <laughs> keep them forever. Oh, my God, it's getting really lovey-dovey <laughs> here at late this afternoon. Never do any anything with those. Hold on to them forever. I know you will, though. I know you certainly will. But then you made the big move after a number of years. You decided to up sticks from Ghent. A great job you had there. And come and join this fellow in Ireland. Yes,
5: that was 2008.
2: (gasps) No, no, don't tell me it was (laughs) The the worst timing ever. (laughs) You came to join us in the wonderful Irish financial crash. Yes,
5: well, just before, actually, um, that's when I gave up my job in Belgium, um, thinking, you know, I'd be able to find a job here. But then the crash happened and, you know, no such thing. So I think that's where the two of us really kind of gave our, our, our art dreams and our art career that we've always wanted to pursue that we decided to give that a shot, really, mm. and just try and, you know, carve something out for ourselves because the work simply wasn't there. Yeah, and so we started working on the arts like that.
2: So that was really what forced you down this road in an ironic way. The
4: recession, yeah. yes. yes, weirdly, in a way, yes. Yeah. yeah, it was. It was a, definitely a, a significant factor mm. because it's that old adage, you know, life gives you lemons, make lemonade, and and that's kind of how we we decided to approach that kind of negative situation around us. And we decided, well, look, it's an excuse now. We can really get stuck in here. Mm. Um, and it's that nice thing of us against the world kind of. And, uh, you know, you're up against it, You just have to, you know, sink or swim. And we decided to swim.
2: Indeed you did. And really have. You're Olympic swimmers at this stage, <laughs> may I say. Um, you were part-time teaching, were you
4: getting yes, at the time? I was part-time teaching. Um, and so that made it, 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 you know, it was it was a little bit... Um. It wasn't always super reliable, but it was. It was a good to have a few quid coming in. that You were able mm. to keep, yeah, you keep shelter uh, and keep yourself fed. And uh, it was lean um, for and, many people and, that time. For, yeah. Exactly for many people, it was lean. And, and in a weird way, that was kind of comforting. That when you were with your friends and stuff, you were able to kind of. You were, you were all in the same boat. People were in similar circumstances. And uh, I think we were able to share the burden somehow. And it was also a great time for our creativity because you're kind of like, well, how can I be creative? Never mind, it wasn't just about, uh, you know, your financial situation personally or, you know. It was also artistically, how could you stretch that euro that much further? What could you do yourself? How could you um turn nothing into something yes and um you were just made to think about things i suppose it's like old movies uh they they didn't have money to do something so they just invented something new uh, and i suppose yeah, we did that all the time every day was a new invention of oh wait, wait, wait this is an idea how about this so yeah
2: Oh, that 's interesting, you know, in times of need and must do you just do it as you said. Yeah. now, will you explain to us how you differ as artist else what do you do what's your speciality?
5: well actually um, in college I studied printmaking but I don't really do a lot of printmaking anymore right now just still a little bit from time to time um, my, my own speciality um, is in my own artwork is um, painting and drawing a little bit of print but I think the two of us together you know we've developed um, I think the speciality of you know developing visual concepts as well and projects together where we work with other people and where we work with other creatives and for me personal, personally personally that balance between my own artwork where I'm on my own in the studio making my thing and then working with other people in festival contexts in theatre contexts, in visual art contexts, just working with other creatives, I, I kind of need that 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 balance mm. um, I just love both so it's, yes. it's a great way of, of working
4: um, in, in, I suppose in my case obviously as Alice mentioned we work with a lot of people uh, as well and that is part of the Post recession thing, than where we end up working with lots of other people in really creative ways, but 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 in my own practice, uh, I probably have more darker paintings. Um, even though I'm, I'd like to think I'm fairly colourful and <laughs> jovial. He and is colourful. Uh, <laughs> They're both very colourful, I can tell you. But the paintings, for whatever reason, are a little bit maybe more, a little bit more introspective. Um, uh, probably a little bit obsessive about corridors and and transitions, and, and uh, you know the idea of thresholds and. Going from one place to another and it's always something I found amazing uh fascinating it's not just it's not just a physical changing mm. uh but uh, that's something I spend a lot of time in in my work uh, how we change as people and how we grow as people yes and I suppose it's plumbing that depth in in for, for me and, and of course, as as mentioned, i also am painting drawing and um um so for me, my main degree was painting, whereas one of my underneath that I had print. So it's funny that the two of us have kind of t- helped each other as yes, well. Yes, there the is that synergy between and both and, of you.
5: And then the work that we do together yeah. as well.
4: Yes. And I want to tell you, folks, that their work, do you want to
2: see it? Drop into the Drehead Art Centre at the moment and have a look. It's on display there. You can see what these wonderful people do. So if you're passing or you're in Drogheda any day, call in, they'd be delighted to see you there. They love visitors and come and have a look for yourself. Where do you draw inspiration from most? Is it different for both of you or similar?
5: I take a lot of inspiration from um, from two sources, really. One is um, the idea of being on the way, you know, being on the way, whether it's in Ireland, whether it's in Belgium, whether it's travelling that we're doing. I always have my camera with me and I take inspiration from all the travels and all the trips that we do. But I also take inspiration from um, looking at the world that we live in, thinking about it, musing about it. You know, how can how can this place become a better place, maybe, or a more interesting place? Or you know, que- sometimes philosophical questions like that. I like to ask myself just just looking yes. around and, and taking inspiration from daily life. Yeah, yep. for you, Declan.
4: Well, as I mentioned, I suppose I'm, I'm a little bit more introspective uh, at the moment. Um, beginning a body of work uh, really around the people in our lives, the people that we've kind of um, um, met along the way, as Els mentions. But um, I'm very interested in who people are. Um, When you strip back all the kind of, you know, fluff and we get to who we are, what are we about, what are we we really doing here? And uh, I suppose the next body of work I'm, thinking there's, there's obviously composers and there's musicians that are absolutely fantastic and there's there's something very i, I find really interesting and fascinating it's not just listening to them playing music even when you're sitting there talking to these people there's a there's a there's a, a depth and there's a determination that's uh, quite unique uh, but i suppose i could say that about anybody people have their stories and i suppose i want to scratch away and find out what everyone's story is just you know even looking at them and talking to them mm. Oh.
2: interesting it's an interesting alchemy you have between both of his of you as well. And it obviously works really well. I, I want to talk more about uh, you two and Eddie. Is that what you call it? E-D-D-E? Is that how I pronounce it? We yeah? call it Ed. 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 Just yes. Ed. Straightforward. Yes. So, Ed. so we're going to talk about Ed. What's Ed? I hear them saying out there. You have to stay tuned to find out what Ed is because they're two wonderful people. They're with me on late lunch this afternoon. After the break, we're going to find out about Ed and more in the company of Declan Kelly and Els Borgart. Okay, so let's hear about Ed now. What is Ed?
5: Ed is actually the artwork that Declan and um, I that we make together. And um, it's it's our colourful way of looking at the world. It's a light way for us to kind of paint and draw and have a lot of fun. And then these drawings and paintings that, that are all handmade, they are turned into into prints or into uh, greeting cards or other things that we make together. Mm. It's
4: it's kind of an excuse, I suppose, especially for me, as I mentioned earlier on, in my own work, I tend to go gravitate to very dark subjects. And suddenly, and but there is a colourful side that explodes out using the ed work and the Ed work, it's, it's, it's E-D-D-E and it's Els Declan Declan Els. That's the idea, that mirror Very image. clever. So <laughs> it's, it's that excuse, I suppose, we have to be really explosive and colourful and just make really fun stuff together. Mm. Um, we tried doing other stuff in the past and it didn't quite work, but this, is, this method works for us. Um, it's, just, it's just a, it's a lovely harmony. Um, and, uh, yeah, well, we just keep doing it in the last few years. And
2: if you check out E-D-D-E on Facebook... You're there, aren't you? Yeah. Yes. Have a look at it there, folks, if you're with a smartphone, which most people in the world are, let's face it today, or beside the computer or whatever. The move in twenty sixteen was it to 20. what year did you eight. move to Millmount? Eight,
5: 2018. Eight, eighteen. Eighteen.
2: Sorry, eight. I'm I'm doing you two years. Twenty eighteen to, to Millmount uh, and to your own studio there. And Declan, you've been a local boy here. It's not lost on you, and I'm sure else at this stage, the significance of Millmount and the gathering of creative people that are there is that it, inspirational.
4: Absolutely. I mean, there's amazing people in the Millmount quarter uh, making all kinds of uh, beautiful, uh, art, uh, I suppose, pieces of art, netware. Uh, ceramics, jewellery, silk scarves, beautiful things. So we're we're surrounded by top class uh, artists and creatives. Uh, So you can't help but be inspired by that kind of environment, as well as the history of the the, the quarter, uh, the the, the uh, museum are fantastic for kind of bringing people in, obviously, and teaching them about the town and the grisly history that's that's up there. But it's beautiful views. Um, so every time we look out the window, just there's another stunning, you know, uh, suns- very sunset, yes. sunset, or yeah. uh, or rain. In fact, <laughs> wind and rain is a factor too. But um, it's it just it is a beautiful location, and uh, even for tourists coming into the town, they get to see that the people of Drahada are producing. Unique creative work, um, and it's not just something coming off of, uh, a yeah, Amazon or whatever. It's it's there. It's, it's physical. Bespoke. It's it, unique. It's from the heart. Hand made. It's handmade.
2: Yeah, Everything absolutely. you want to say about it. No, I want to say one thing. You you have that base now, and it's wonderful. But you travel. You mentioned traveling traveling with your camera and taking these yes. photographs and that inspiration. But you travel a lot for work. You're out on site a lot, aren't you? <laughs>
5: Yes, well um the two of us we also work with the the Belfast Ensemble. That's a, a music theatre ensemble that also um works with visual artists like us um, to, uh, to do theatre productions, music productions, opera, and they're very often, um, abroad. So we'd be working in Belfast and then London and Hull are also on the schedule for this year. So, um, we go and, and, and work on site, develop, um, artworks, video projections and all kinds of, um, visual, Cool visual looking uh, productions, I hope, <laughs> of course together with
2: them. And they enhance so much, you know, the the projects that, that you're involved with as well. It, it's an essential part of it now Abs- today.
4: Absolutely. I mean, it's, you mentioned Synergy earlier on. So when we're working with uh, the one of the main people we're working with there, the Belfast Ensemble, is Connor Mitchell. He's an incredible composer and uh, musician. And um, he really wanted to build a. Uh, Theatre company, a music theatre company that involves all of those people, and they really work together. so there's does a collaboration between all those minds and ideas. And so people are responding, and you end up with something quite avant-garde, something really cutting edge and exciting. And when the audience comes in and sees this work, they, we want them to say, "I've never seen anything like this before." Yeah. And so for us as artists, that's the thing. It's not we're well, not there as set designers; we're there as artists to create installations that will wow people and make people think differently about what is theatre and how they interact with those things. But we're also, again, we mentioned in music, we're very keen to put the musicians front and centre to really, these are... Live musicians; these guys are, you know, c- you know, top of their uh, the, the profession. They're, you know, absolutely stunningly talented. And but it's obviously down to that practice, that effort. And to being a musical town, somehow probably had a, a big part of that. And uh, when, when every time we, you know, go go across over to up to Belfast there, and we work with them, you, you know, we, we found ourselves even with the flower was quite funny because of all the music here. And you know, well, actually, it keeps coming back again and again. This music connection yes. to art, so.
5: And we're looking forward to bring the Belfast Ensemble to Drada as well.
4: It will come here? It, it is coming here?
5: It will come to Drada. That's, um We were lucky enough to um, receive the Arts Festival, the Drada Arts Festival Commission. For next year, this for, year, 2019. For this year, yes. 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 For this next year, year yeah. 2019. So we will bring a um, um, a new production, well, uh, 10 Plagues, uh, it's called, from the Belfast Ensemble to the Drada Arts Centre. It's Brilliant
2: to look forward to that at this stage. And, and, and mentioning 2018 and the flower, uh, you did a great job with this public art project as well.
4: Yeah, we, we, we were lucky enough to uh, get involved with the uh, um, the Green Flower Committee, mm. um, a brilliant uh, initiative to kind of encourage people to take advantage of the flower as well to promote uh, how the, uh, they were going to be recycling and pr- promoting uh, how County Loud is involved in recycling and what can be done. But also to make people aware of the waste um, and obviously as artists we're very much aware of the waste that goes on and, and we're kind of I suppose we quite left leaning maybe Um we wanted to raise people's awareness on what's going out there so we had thousands of bottle caps and all kinds of um, strange broken materials and smashing guitars and all that that we turn these.
5: into a big mosaic
2: basically yes. made out of recycled materials. Yes. yes. And it is very important at this time. Everybody must be aware. This Absolutely. planet is precarious. as they it's in at the moment. Yeah. And for
5: us that's a very, sustainability, that's a very important issue that we are mm. very concerned with in everything we do.
2: And everybody should be concerned with it and it's not a mirage as that fellow with the funny hair doing America <laughs> says. It is reality. If we don't all step up to the mark for future generations and including our own generations, we're in real trouble and that is the message. You know, we started off talking about, you know, the start of the recession when you came to Ireland and there was nothing and you had to sink or swim and you certainly have swam ever since. Is it still a precarious, uh, what would I say, profession, calling in life to be an artist?
5: I think... There is no such thing as an easy path for an artist. Um, I think there is no laid out path in advance that you can follow, you know, going from A to B to the next step. It doesn't exist. You kind of have to, as an artist, really figure out yourself what it is you're interested in, what it is you're about, what, where your heart is and where your inspiration lies and try and carve it out for yourself. There is no such thing as, as, as well, for very few people maybe, but it's not, it's rarely easy. Um and I think that's where, where your passion and where what you really care about, that's what drives you as an artist.
2: For you, Jacqueline, I know now you've, uh, you were a part-time teacher, you're a full-time teacher now in the grammar school, a teacher of art. One thing that's crossed my mind, I have to get in this, this in before the finish because I'm really curious about this. Is there creativity
4: in art and art in all of us? Absolutely, absolutely, 100%. I think it's a case of scratching away um, usually it's it's a negativity that people have built up about themselves they'll tell themselves uh, I can't do that I can't do it. and they say, they say it a million times and they start believing it and I usually go back to something like when, when some kid kicks a football when they're five years old and it, it goes the right direction and someone tells him that's brilliant well done Jim and little Jim goes and kicks the ball again and he's delighted with himself art is kind of the same thing whether you pick up a pencil and someone gives a little bit of positivity and you feel great about yourself and you just keep going um, and I think that's the thing most people People, if they allow themselves to have the creativity, if they just sit down, when you write your name, that's a drawing. You know, it's a combination of line and it creates a shape and that shape creates, we think it's a word. But if you think it's just a load of graphite or pen on a page and we understand it. So it's actually quite a complex idea when you think about it. Um, And so everyone can do it. And everyone's handwriting is fascinating. Mm -hmm. You know, no one writes the same way. That's the other thing. We all have our unique way of writing it's not just our signature if I take up a page and start writing something you'll write differently to me so it's an amazing way to see where we are very unique on a planet of nearly 8 billion people we all write differently it's amazing
2: it is. It's nearly like DNA. And you've just made the day of a failed leaving cert art student. <laughs> I'm now 10 feet tall. I've expunged that from my memory forever. And I'm walking tall from here on in. I'm going to sign my name loads of time this evening and say art, art, art. Anyway, look, it's been a real pleasure meeting both of you on late lunch today. You're great people, I know. I wish you well. Congratulations with the Commission for 2019. It's an exciting year ahead. We Can't wait for the Belfast to come to town and see what that's all about. Continue Success to both of you, and thank you so much for joining me on the show today, Detlin Kelly and Els Bokart. Thank
5: you very much. Us. Thank you so much for having us.
0: The late lunch with Blackstone Motors. Order your Renault 191 today and avail of low APR finance, cashback, and three year servicing. Visit Blackstone Motors today or see blackstonemotors.ie. Sean Woods
2: is on the line with me on late lunch this afternoon. Hello, Sean. Hi, Gary. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for taking our call today. You were listening, I know, last week and you heard the various meningitis stories. Now, you have a different angle on this completely. And you know the way it's in a lot of people's minds that it's a children thing or when you're younger. When did you first get meningitis? What age were you? Uh,
1: just over 30, Gary, between 30 and 31, yeah, 1986. So yeah. you you'd think you're
2: at an age that you're well over the hump and you wouldn't expect it. How did it manifest itself with you?
1: Well, I thought I would have been a bit prone to getting the flu, jerry over the years. I just thought it was the flu coming on, you know, at the time. And uh, I think it was uh, the 12th of March, a week before Paddy's Day, flu symptoms and all that sort of went down and getting worse and worse. And doctor was called and then um, eventually... Um, kind in and out of consciousness and very, you know, bleary and dreary and all that type of thing. So, um why he got to the hospital, so brother-in-law came round to drive me up and when he arrived, he got me as far as the front door and collapsed. out. remember nothing after that. So, the ambulance was sent for then and to the, on to the load and was there for a couple of days, which I wouldn't have gone out in the very jury and then on to the Richmond where it was a coma together up for seven days and then recovery after that so that's the way it went for me jerry
2: so coma a seven day coma before you came out of it and you spent yeah. time then in hospital and was yeah. getting back on your feet and recuperating did that take time
1: it did jerry when I eventually got out i think it was maybe two and a half weeks out to get up you know from start to finish um there was a month then and strong antibiotics at home and not to leave the house and you know, so um, eventually got 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 stronger. We lost a lot of weight in that. Okay, you know, and uh, recuperated at home, and then bit by bit, said bit of paralysis. Okay, in the left arm, but um, it was more muscular hangover than anything else. So it it came back with exercise and physio, and that you know. So
2: yeah, so you made the a full recovery with time from it, frightening yeah. time. You remember nothing yeah. of that time when you would yeah. be regarded as critical in hospital, yeah. and that oh, was yeah. that first one. That was bacterial, was it then? Yes.
1: Oh, sorry, yeah.
2: Okay, so in your lifetime, you'd say, Sean, that, you know, on the law of averages, I've had my brush with Mr. Men and that is that, but not so with you. What happened, oh. and how many years went by before you got it a second time?
1: Mm-hmm. I did, coming up the, the week of a millennium. Uh, probably, again, about a week before, uh, 1999, and at the same situation, back, Jerry, you know, again. to get... I would have been getting a flu job in between, you know, as yeah. I used to get that, which I did then, okay. But still, uh, more or less, carbon copy situation after last, the bed and uh, the doctor on call, you know, he's actually a former neighbor, Dr. back can call me here. He came down and he just have to be on, on the call. And um, we, went through the, we went through the case from the wife, and you know, she says it'll hardly be back again. And he says, look, I'll, I'll give you, you know, the injection. But, uh, Injection if they get you in time, if it's an antibiotic, I think, whatever. Yeah. So he says, I'll give you that just in case. So uh, he went away anyway and was getting up better for Teresa called the, the ambulance then herself, uh, being the night it was going to be, uh, everybody partying, you know what I mean, from then on. So um, paramedics came, brought me into the ambulance, and I, remember the, I always remember the guy saying, like, so when we get to the load, tell them exactly what happened to the last time, or whatever. You know, don't be thinking mm. that it might come back or it mightn't come back. So I just got in really, Jerry, and explained. The next thing, bang, a crash situation. That was it again. And again, I the family was there. I was, you know, all hell broke This is a yard's bells ringing, and that's the last I heard. So I, was was um, bacterial at this stage. Uh, like no, sorry, uh, viral at this stage, when it happened. So I was there, I think, for four days uh, in a coma again, three to four days, and then a week uh, recovering there, and then back home again. You know, so.
2: So that was um, the viral one you had second time uh, round. Uh, yeah,
1: viral second time. Joe, the reckon talking to the doctors that the germ was still laying in the spine. Like there would have been, you know, yourself lumbar punctures now. The situation's done the first time, and obviously the second time, but. Um, Talking to doctors after that, my own doctor, when he got the report back that the germ that was part of the was still active in the spine and uh, it lay there for between the difference between '86 and '99, you know. So,
2: yeah, what a night! You, uh, your family will never forget uh, yeah. the yeah. turn of the millennium, Chris. Uh, yeah. New Year's Eve, 31st December 1999, yeah. and all hell breaks, breaks yeah. loose in yeah. your house yeah. again, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, look, you've, you've come through the second time. Yeah. I take it that, like, you know, you must be a rarity, somebody who's had yeah. it twice first off and yeah. two different versions of it, Sean.
1: Yeah, my own daughter sort the walk today, so <laughs> I don't know what the million the, the odds against it was, you know what I mean? But, uh, yeah. you know, should sure, Dr. Jerry's great so I, But, you know, when you hear of all the other cases, it's like, you know what, those various things that of depression and, you know, more or less psychological rather than, Physical, which, you know, when the brain swells, you know, you find that all these things are after it a capillator's end of it. And plus and, uh, and the fact, thank God, uh, there was a professor way back in Richmond. He said the fact that I never smoked, he says, like, depending on the life support machines, you know, like, what uh, mm. what they have to do to you with your lungs and all that type of thing. He says, that really, he more or less said, I don't think you would have survived, you know, the first bit if you had been a smoker. Right. You know, so that was one... It stood to you. Bit of a plus.
2: Mm, and a, a real benefit. But since then, that was uh, 1999 into 2000. Yeah. Basically, health's been re- good since? No major no ah, incidents yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: yeah. Overall, good. Yeah, God you almighty. Have, you have, you you've plan, had enough. You plan to take week to week, you know, day to day, week to week, and then eventually you get stronger, man, you know. But you like, the family goes through an awful lot with it. They, you you don't really know a lot about what's going on, you know what I mean? You, if you're lucky to get to recovery mode. It's the family that suffer. Like, like, we had five kids under 10 the first time, you know, back in 86. So uh, we were dependent on our family and neighbourhood friends and all that. They were very, very good to us. I would have been the oldest of my own siblings, but Theresa would, would, would have been the younger mm. of our siblings. Like, so we were dependent on them, you know, around the hospitals and up and down Jerry and the whole lot. So they were very good to us. Plus the company that I worked for, very good luck and back and all. We worked and... Yeah. Where did you work, company? Sean? Uh, it was the old echo, like G oh, it there, yes. the old echo plant, and yeah, dog had yeah. then it was Harris and
2: yeah, ended course. up
1: little fuse, you know, so mm, mm. they were very good to us at the time, like and I was on a probationary contract for a year and it was six months into it. I would have been in a temporary before that and I was basically off six months altogether, Jerry, you know, but there was there was no problem with them, you know, they were very, very honest and very good, you know. Yeah,
2: I love to hear that, you know, yeah, that yeah. that support is there. It's very important yeah. at a time when you're at your most vulnerable. You oh, know, yeah. It's yeah. Fa- yeah. Re- really, really fantastic to hear yeah. it. Yeah. A- anyway, your story is um, mm-hmm. pretty unique, as I say, and you've lived yeah. to tell the tale, uh, yeah. the, the cat of nine lives. <laughs>
1: That's for the secretary. Yeah,
2: decision, Jerry, okay. <laughs> you have seven left, Sean. Good man. Hopefully, yeah, <laughs> hopefully, yes. You never have yeah. to use them. I, I'm yeah, sure you yeah. won't. But look, Sean, okay. thank you very much for joining me on the show today. Oh,
1: it's and good to tell a story. Thanks, Jerry. Okay, thank you
2: indeed. Take care good now. Bye, That's bye, Sean Woods. Thank you. Bye bye. In Dundalk this afternoon, not once but twice, and two different versions as well. Just to tell you that it's something that you can come through and deal with uh, not once but twice in in his particular case now let's go back to Foster and Allen. reminding you again that they're bringing their show putting on the style to the Knightsbrook Hotel in Trim tomorrow night there's still a few tickets knocking about if you'd like to go and see them and put a pep in your step this January contact the hotel or through Ticketmaster I have a pair to give away today and I will I think I'll wangle a pair well I'll do my best for tomorrow for you anyway Tomorrow night the show is You Must Be Able To Go. The question today, Foster and Alan, what is Allen's Christian name? And the answer is Tony. Tony Allen is the man we were looking for. Tony was the answer. Lots and lots of people looking for these tickets. They're ever popular, these guys. They really are. And the winner of those tickets today is Breed Cully. Breed, well done to you from Longwood. Those tickets are yours. We'll be in touch to make the arrangements. Go along and enjoy that show tomorrow evening. Anyway, that's almost a lot on Late Lunch for another day. Thank you so much to my guest today. I really enjoyed my conversation with Alf Nicholson. What a brilliant man he is, Professor Alf Nicholson. Els Borgart and Declan Kelly, the artist, with us here as well on the show this afternoon. And don't forget to check out their website, E D D E art.com if you want to find out more about them and to Sean Woods who was with me uh, just a short while ago have a lovely midweek Wednesday evening Eddie's up next with The Drive and we're leaving you in the company of the boys in the news they're back together they're performing a new single it's Uptown Girl